go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to verses 10 through 16 tonight. And Lord willing, I think we'll get that far, but we'll see. I can't make any promises, but right, we're going to shoot for verses 10 through 16. Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he preached the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Now I cannot wait to get into this section here tonight because we're going to be dealing with a passage here, especially when we get to the be holy, for I am holy, that has caused a lot of Christians belly aches. They've struggled with this passage. And we're going to, hopefully by God's uh, uh, grace and wisdom coming to us, uh, be able to see this maybe in a new light. But now in order to study this passage, though, what I think we're supposed to do is start in verse 13 with that first word, therefore. Alright? You see, this word ties the two sections that we're looking at tonight together. And in doing so, it will help us understand the passage that has caused concern for so many. I mean, there are many Christians that say, look, I try to be holy, uh, but I don't do very good. Am Am I even saved? Well, before we even look at the action points that Peter gives us in verses 13 through 16, we need to see what the therefore is there for. Alright? So that's what we're going to be doing. So let's go back and take a look closely, though, at these verses, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, I'll be honest with you, I had not intended to teach much on verses 10, 11, and 12. We've referred to it in previous parts of our study as we wrapped up last week. We've referenced the fact that the the salvation we've been given is a wonderful thing, and even the prophets wanted to know about it, and the angels longed to look into it. And as I just kind of was going through this and looking at it as I was prepared for tonight's study, I started to realize there is a depth here of stuff that I never have seen before, and I have to take the time to deal with it. And in doing so, that's when the rest of the section made sense. Verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 will all of a sudden become clear because of what's in the deep part of verses 10, 11, and 12. So, here he says, concerning this salvation. Now, as a reminder, when he's talking about salvation, we have a tendency to read just justification. Remember? We hear the word salvation and we think of justification. But as we've been seeing in our study, our salvation has three parts. And it's all one thing in God's mind. We call it justification, sanctification, and glorification. Christians, unfortunately, have seen them as three separate parts. But they're all the same thing. When God looks at us and He talks about salvation, He is referring to the whole deal. And as you saw last week, we need to be seeing the glory of the glorious day of our salvation when we got saved. We need to look about the glorious day when He's going to come back and bring salvation with Him. Why aren't we living in glory now? Because we think that sanctification part of salvation is up to us. And the Bible says it's not. It's up to Him. He was the one the Scripture has been teaching us that sanctifies us. That's a question, by the way. Who sanctifies us? Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies us. How do we get saved? 
the beginning part of salvation, we trust in Him. We believe what He has said and we trust Him. How do we get sanctified? In the same way. You believe what He said and you trust Him and He does the work. How are we getting glorified? Well, let's be honest. We don't know how. We just trust Him. We believe that it's going to happen. And, you know, Paul even wrestled in 1 Corinthians 15. What kind of body are we going to have? And what's it going to be like? And how old will we be? We know nothing hardly about this glorification that's coming. But you know what? We believe it and we trust Him. And folks, as you heard last week, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's study, please do. We need to rest in this part of salvation just as much as we do the first and last parts. We need to trust that the God who began a good work in you will finish it. Now, at the same time, we see in this section here that we're going to see in a little bit, that He's given us instructions, things we're supposed to do. Wait a minute, Jim, how do, what do I mean I'm supposed to do something? I thought I was supposed to just rest in Christ. Well, we're going to see how those two work together tonight. But first of all, remember, he says, concerning this salvation, whenever you read that from now on, don't ever read just justification. Understand that God looks at your salvation as all three parts together. All right. So concerning this salvation, which incorporates all three parts, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, I'm going to ask you a question. Has this grace already come to you? Yes. Is this grace coming to you? Yes. Exactly. Did you hear that? It's already come, and it's coming. You, you all could quote Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by what? Grace that you have been saved through faith, right? Not of yourself, to gifts of God, not of works, and no one can boast. Did you catch that? It is by grace that you have been saved. You've already received the grace of God, yet... Here it says, the grace that was to come to you, we read that and we think, well, he's talking about salvation, justification. No, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 again. Prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on what? The grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you understand? You've already received grace, but you're still going to receive grace. Do you need grace for sanctification? Yes, you do. We've got to stop seeing justification, sanctification, and glorification as three separate events. It's all tied together in your salvation. So, if you, I were to say, are you going to heaven? You'd say yes. And I'd say, why? you say, because I believe Jesus and I trust Him as my Savior. I'd say, great. If I'd say, how's the sanctification process going? Most of us say, oh, not so good. Why? Because we think it's still up to us. You've got to rest in Him the same way you rest in your salvation, rest in that sanctification. Alright? Now, with that in mind, let's keep in mind that the word grace means what? Does anybody know what the word grace means? God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, that's a great alliteration of it. God's riches at Christ's expense. But, but the word charis, do you, you might not know this. It's a gift. Grace is what God gives you that you don't deserve. That's right. Mercy is when He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Grace is when He gives us what we don't deserve. But grace is a gift. That's why we see the word charis. It's a Greek word. Gift. Charis. That's why we hear the term charismatic. Having to do with the gifts. The charismatics are the ones who focus so much on the spiritual gifts that, that we call them charismatics. But that's where it comes from. The word grace is a gift. Alright, so your listen closely. Your salvation was a gift. We know that there's a grace to come to you. Must be a gift. At the same time, your sanctification, which is still part of your salvation, God's going to give you grace for that as well. It's going to be a gift. Now, what are we, what's our responsibility with a gift? Accept it. Accept it. To receive it. 
We could say, no, 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 I'm not going to receive that gift and reject it. Or we could say, sounds good, are there any more? You know, like little kids do at birthday parties. Is that all? You know, kind of a thing. Receive the gift. And so when he says, when, concerning this salvation, he's talking the whole deal, the prophets who spoke of the grace of the wonderful gift that was to come to you, it has and it's still coming. But then it goes and it says this. It says, they searched... Well, let me read it here. They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out what? Look closely. Keep running. The time and the circumstances of what? Keep coming. Keep reading. And see, this is something I have not seen before. For all these years, I thought it was just talking about, they were just wondering about this salvation. Look closely what it says here. They searched with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, if you look here in the context, what's really going on is the prophets were looking to find out when would these sufferings of Christ be and the glories that would follow. This is tied in with this whole salvation thing and this will help the second part make a whole lot more sense. And so I want to show you scripturally how the prophecies talked about the fact that the Messiah or the coming one would be suffer, who would suffer, and then at the same time that he would be also glorified. Uh, so let me just jump with me there. Go to Psalm 22. Look at verses 6 through 18, and then we're going to jump to verses 19 through 31. In Psalm 22, look what verses 6 through 18 says. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. The strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax and is melted away within me. My strength has dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now we're going to stop there and we're going to keep on reading in verse 19 and following in a second here. But here we see it's obvious that David wasn't writing about himself, was he? He was writing about somebody else. And the the prophets were saying, okay. And even David probably wondered. The Bible doesn't say that they understood what they were writing. They just knew that they were being moved by the Spirit to write these things. This is obviously writing about somebody else. And it's whoever it is, is definitely going to be going through some serious suffering. They're going to pierce his hands and his feet, and they're going to cast his lots for his clothing, and his tongue's going to stick to the roof of his mouth, his bones are going to come out of joint, all this kind of stuff. But if you keep reading, look at what they, what they also find out. This suffering person, whoever it is, is going to also be glorified. Look what it says in verses 19 and following. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has listened to His cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before Him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, for He has done it. There's an amazing transfer that's happened here and transition that's happened here. This suffering servant at some point is going to call out and God's going to do something where He's going to be glorified. And everybody's going to look to Him and lean to Him. Well, it gets even more clear in Psalm 50, I mean, Isaiah 53. Go to Isaiah 53. Now, many of us can quote the suffering parts of Isaiah 53, but how many of us know about the glory parts of Isaiah 53? Look at verses 1 through 6 in Isaiah. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if you keep reading, you'll find out that he also dies in this story here, talking about Jesus in this prophecy. We know about this part, the suffering servant. This is, this is what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from when Philip comes alongside of him. Remember, Philip's in the chariot, and the Spirit of the Lord tells him to go over to the chariot, and uh, he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he gets up there, and the eunuch asks him this question. Is, is Isaiah writing about himself or somebody else? And Philip had the opportunity from that passage to begin to teach him about Jesus and how this was pointing to Jesus. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12, though. If you've never seen this, look closely what it says. Yes, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Now keep that in mind. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here in this prophecy, it says that whoever this person is, this suffering servant, is going to die and be punished for other people's sins. Yet, 
Even though it was the Lord's will to crush him, look at what it says. Even though the Lord makes, verse 10, makes his life a guilt offering, this person will see his offspring and prolong his days. How can he do that if he dies? I mean, if you die, how are you going to see your offspring? He's coming back to life. Look at what it says in verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see what? The light of life. And be satisfied. So the prophets, going back here now to 1 Peter, listen again to what it says. They, try, they search with greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He preached, and, I, and I'll, I'll go back to that, when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They were sitting there going, alright, there's something here in the prophecies, there's something that God's having us write about, there's someone who's going to suffer, yet after His suffering, He's going to be glorified. When? Now, first of all, who's the one that was telling them to write it down? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. How is it written, though? Look closely. The Spirit of who? Isn't that interesting? It says the Spirit of Christ in them. Now, this, to be honest with you, has given some people problems. They're like, wait a minute. I, I thought it was the Holy Spirit. How could this be Christ's Spirit? They're all one and the same, folks. God the who, who created the world? God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Yes. It, all three. I can show you places all the way through. One place it says God created the world. Another place it said Jesus created the world. Another place it said the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Was it the God the Father, Jesus the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Yes. yes. You can't separate them. So when it says the Spirit of Christ, think about the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to send the Counselor. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. They're all connected. But it's interesting, the spirit of the one in whom they were writing about was the one telling them to write. That's kind of cool. It wasn't the spirit of God the Father talking about somebody else. It was the spirit of God Himself, the spirit of Christ Himself, who was telling them what to write. But what did he have them write about? And this is important. You've got to stay with me here. He told, exactly, he told them to write about his suffering in this life and the glory that would follow. I'm going to say that again. He told them to write about the suffering in this life and the glory that would follow. Whose will was it to crush him? It was God's will. It was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now, here's we're going to move into a realm here where we don't want to deal with it, but we have to. We have a tendency in Christianity, especially in America, where we are trying to design a Christianity with no suffering. Yet, all through Scripture, the Bible says that if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to you. We've already talked about last week where when trouble comes, we say, what did I do wrong? Where's God? How can I get away from this? Yet, the one who's within us was inspiring them to write about his sufferings and the glory that would follow. Yet, we say, when trouble comes, why? What did I do wrong? Go with me to John chapter 15. Let me remind you of something Jesus said. John 15, verses 18 through 21.
Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Look what Jesus said. If they don't like me, they're not going to like you. But there's a problem we're having. As much as Paul said that he would try to become all things to all men, that he might win some, and the Bible teaches that that there's nothing wrong with understanding who it is we're trying to reach and trying to communicate on a level that they would understand. We in the church today, though, have taken it a little too far, and we're trying to build a church that the world will love. Are we not? Don't we go out in the neighborhoods nowadays and do surveys? If we built a church here, what would you like it to be? I'm not kidding you. I was trained in seminary to ask those questions. We were taught to go out in the neighborhood and, and survey the congregation, not congregate, but the, 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 the neighborhood. If we were to build a church here, what would you like it to do? And we were to design the church for the people. It's supposed to be for God. It's supposed to be for God. Now, yes, we're going to understand how to communicate to these folks, but we should not then move into the realm where they feel comfortable in their sin or comfortable as the world. We, then there are those who say, well, we're just going to make sure that we don't do that, and they're so rigid that even God wouldn't feel comfortable in that place because He wouldn't fit in. You understand? There's a balance here. So what I'm just going to say to you, and how that all plays out specifically in each one of your lives, you're going to let the Spirit of God, you're going to have to let the Spirit of God teach you that. But I'm saying to you is this, yes, Paul said we must become all things to all men that I might win some. Yet at the same time, don't try to make it so that the world will be comfortable. We have to be willing to say, this is truth. Right now, I I read it on the news uh, two nights ago about a Christian college in Georgia who's just simply asking each of their staff, staff and faculty to sign that they believe that homosexuality is not approved by God. That's what the Bible says. And sex outside of marriage and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it wasn't just homosexuality. He's right, it was sex outside of marriage and all that. The world is going nuts. And they just said simply, look, all we're asking them to do is say they are who we are. But the world is saying, no, you can't do that. And many churches today are blending in with the world's way of looking at things instead of what the Bible says. And so we're trying to do... Why are we doing that? Because we want to avoid persecution. We want to avoid controversy. Why aren't we willing to just simply in love say, this is what the Bible says and we believe every word of it. And we still love you. It's not like we think you're a horrible person. Because sin is sin. But we're not going to stop saying that certain things aren't sin anymore so that you'll be happy. Oh, there's a lot that, that, that would stand up and say that. That would say what? We would stand up and say that this is what the Bible says and this is what I believe, period. That's it. Yep, and good for them. And they need to. We need to be that way. Go ahead, Allison. I saw your hand. And ultimately, we're, if we conform to it, we say we're just going to not talk about what we believe Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. So, I guess what I want you to see is this. I don't want you to go looking for trouble, but stop being surprised when it happens. 
Now, some of you say, well, you know, we don't suffer much persecution in here in America. And that's true, but it's, 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 it's increasing, and it will increase. But let me just say one more thing that you might not think about. Remember, you are God's workmanship, right? You've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But you're God's workmanship. Jesus said, I'm the vine, my Father is the gardener. Right? Does the gardener sometimes make the plant suffer? It's called pruning. It's called shaping. It's called molding. It's called discipling, if you will, or disciplining. We've already agreed at the beginning of 1 Peter here that he says that we are the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. For what? Obedience to Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that some of the stuff you're going through right now that you don't understand is because you are a child of God. And He's molding you right now. And one of His best tools is suffering, trials, confusion. We cannot deny that what happened to Job in Job's chapter 1 and chapter 2 was simply because God says, I'll allow Satan to do that and I have a plan. But what we have done over the years is, is because we think that God is going to be rewarding our work, that when we do it right, we won't have any of those issues. And then when it happens, our first thought is, I must be doing something wrong. He's mad at me. He's, he, he, he's, he's punishing me for something I've done or not done. And we've not understand the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's not going to punish you anymore. You're His child and He's going to mold you and shape you. And it's everything that happens now is for your best, even the stuff you don't understand. So, Jesus said, after He said, if they hate me, they'll hate you too, He later on went and said this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I wrote it this way. The same Jesus who suffered in this life and then entered glory is now living in us and will give us, I'm going to say it again, will give us the victory and peace as we trust in Him. And this is where most Christians say, I know, but... And folks, I'm just going to be straight with you. The prophet in me doesn't have to just come out and, and, and I apologize. But I'm tired of hearing Christians say, I know, but... Either we believe that He has said that greater is in He that is in you than He that is in the world. Either we believe that He has said, if you will in everything not be anxious, but give it to me, I will give you peace. Either we believe it or we don't. We can stand there and say, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I'm not worried about when I go to heaven. I trust Him. Great. You believe what He said. Why don't you believe Him when He says that He'll walk you through it and you'll be okay on the other side? Why do we fret? Why do we worry? Why do we act like He left us? Why all of a sudden do we trust just in the justification part of the salvation, but we don't trust in the sanctification part of the salvation? It's time that you make that same declaration. Maybe it'll help you to walk an aisle or something. But that you declare, I believe that the same God who saved me in justification will save me in the sanctification. I believe that the same God who's going to bring glory to me and glorification is going to save me in the sanctification part. That we would no longer be tossed to and fro by whatever happened to us lately. But we would say, I, as Paul said right before the shipwreck, I believe it will be to me just as he has said. It's time. It's time. The, the world needs to see it. 
We're going to get to maybe in a few years when we get to third, third, third chapter of First Peter. But, but, but when it talks about be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you. Folks, no one's asking. It's because we rest in our salvation part justification, but we don't rest in the sanctification. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. In other words, Jesus said, I have lived in this life in the same body as you. I was tempted in every way just as you. Oh, and by the way, I probably got it worse than you'll ever get it. And here's the deal. I had the victory. He learned learned obedience through what he suffered, we saw in our study of Hebrews. I know not only how to have victory over the flesh, I've done it. I'm not a signpost Christian that points to the city but never goes there. I'm a tour guide Christian. I know not only the way, I've been there and I can walk you through it. But here's the best part. Here's the part we don't think about. Where is he doing this from? In us. But as Allison said, he's doing it from the point of already having the victory. Sin no longer, because he's died, has any power over him at all. Not that it did before, but he wrestled with it. He don't even wrestle with it anymore, folks. The same Jesus that defeated sin and struggled with tears and shedding of blood now lives within you from the glorified position of already being done with that. You think he had victory over it before. It's not even a struggle for him now. And we must believe what He has said. Therefore. Do you see it? Therefore. Since the same Jesus that was going to go through these sufferings and then enter glory was telling them to write about this salvation that we have received and the grace that is coming to us and has come to us. Therefore, because of this, with this knowledge in mind, knowing this then... What does he say to do next? Prepare your your minds for what? Action. I'm going to ask you a simple question. And the answer cannot be because the law says so. Why do you buckle up? I said the answer cannot be because the law says so. Why Why do you buckle up? Protection. Safety. You're preparing your minds. You're preparing why? You don't know if you're going to run into something. You don't know if someone's going to run into you. Do you know that tomorrow you won't have a car accident? No, we don't know. Could it happen? Very well could. There are a lot of factors involved, especially with people drinking and driving. Why do you buckle up? Because you are preparing for that occasion if it occurs. Correct? The Bible says, with that knowledge of the fact that the Bible says in this life you will have trouble, we need to get up every morning and buckle up. Put on the armor of God. Well, go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And then we'll come back to the passage that uh, Allison's referring to. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Now, some of us still feel that that is just the persecution He went through. How many of you have ever thought about the fact that Jesus suffered in the wilderness at the beginning of His ministry for 40 days? 
Who led him into the wilderness to be tested? The Holy Spirit. God led him into the wilderness to be tested. God put him through a time of trying. God put him through a desert time, if you will. God put him through a time of testing. Don't be surprised if you're going through a time of testing. Hey, if it's because of your sin and God's using this to to discipline you, you'll know He's not punishing you. He's just shaping you. But if you don't even know why it's happening, what should be your attitude? Yeah, even my father knows. And I trust him. And I'm keeping my eyes on him. Even though he's slamming, as Job said, I'm not going anywhere. Did Job ever find out why all that stuff happened? He never did. He never did. You go and look. You'll see. When he had his chance to finally have his face-to-face, God said, I'll tell you what, I'll let you ask any question you want. I'm going to ask you a quick couple ones first. And by the time God asked his questions, Job said, Never mind. I'm good. I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. And that's enough. And I don't need any answers. Are you willing to move into that realm of a child where you don't have to have an answer? Why are you doing this? We like our, our kids like to ask us that, right? I just want to know why. Well, would why make a difference? Or can you be resting in the fact that I'm dad? Do you understand? Are we willing to go there ourselves as, as children of God? But also, like Allison pointed out, go to Ephesians chapter 6. He gives us everything we need. Mm-hmm. I think the reason we don't use it is because we, we may not fully understand how to. And we're going to get to how to in just a sec here. Look at verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Did you catch that? Somebody say, oh, I'm a weak Christian. That's perfect. That means you're actually better off than the person that thinks they're a strong Christian. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can, listen, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, you see that word again, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and it doesn't say if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm sorry if this offends some of you who have this kind of theology, but we've heard too many people say that I'm going to take dominion over Satan. And the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that we are to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, don't give in, and he will leave. Yes, there's an offensive weapon here if you were to do a full study of Ephesians 6, and that's the sword of the Word of God. And what sends him running is the truth of God, but not you swinging your little saber. You're to stand your ground. You don't have to go on the offensive. Folks, don't go on the offensive against Satan. We're going to storm the gates of hell. No, no, no. The Bible says the gates of hell won't prevail against you. Do you see the difference? Stand your ground. Resist Him. Put on the Lord's armor. Rest in what He said. You don't have to have an answer. The Bible says that sometimes you won't get it. But if you understand who you are, and if you rest in this part of your life just as much as you've rested in your salvation, you're going to be alright. But, 
If you think that it's up to you to save yourself, you're going to be in trouble. If you think it's up to you to sanctify yourself, you're going to be in trouble. And for too many of us, we've been trying to be holy. How's that working out for you? Well, buckle up. Now the next thing he says here in 1 Peter, I want you to take a look at, and we need to clarify it, because some of your translations say be sober. My translation says be self-controlled. Some of your translation says be sober, right? Actually, that word sober, or translated be sober or be self-controlled, it has nothing to do with drinking. Alright? It actually is tied, the Greek word, it's actually one word that's translated in our translations by two or three words. It's actually, it's tied to the control of our emotions. In other words, be calm, be cool, keep your head clear and your emotions in check. This is what it's saying. Did you, do you see what he's saying? Prepare your minds for actions. Let me translate it for you. Don't freak out. That's what it's saying. Don't freak out. Be ready. Stuff's going to happen. That's the way it's going to be. My wife and I are learning this phrase. It is what it is. It is what it is. And we're just going to go from here. Knowing what we know and who we know, it is what it is. But we've always spent all our times in Christianity trying to get it to not be what it is. Or maybe if I blind my, cover my eyes, it'll go away. No, it is what it is. Let's just go from here. Alright? Now, listen closely though. This is where we're going to start moving into understanding how to be holy. In order for us to yield though something to God's control. Let me read this again. In order for us to yield something to God's control, we must first acknowledge that it's a need. Then we must give permission to God to produce that response in us as we ask Him to make the change. We must also want Him to and believe that He will. Let me say that again. And I'm going to take some time to clarify this for you. Because this is the biggest part of what it means to really let God do what He's doing, but also understand your responsibility. See, there's been a great debate. Whenever I, whenever I travel and speak to churches about resting in Christ, some of the preachers and the pastors of the churches get all upset. And they say, well, you know, no, 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 we're not supposed to just sit around in a holy huddle and do nothing. I never said we weren't to do anything. But I say to them first, if you don't know how to rest first, you don't know how to do Right. We've been saying you've got to do your part. Well, I'm going to show you what your part is tonight according to the Scriptures. And yes, there is a part that you have. But I don't want to teach you about what your part is until you understand what His part is and how to rest. Alright? So in order for us to yield something to God and to His control, we must first acknowledge that it's a need. If you don't think you've got a problem, you're not going to hand it over to God. Alright? Now, we also then must give God permission to produce that response in us as we ask Him to make the change. Now, stick with me here because I'm going somewhere and some of you are going to say, yeah, but don't, don't hold your yeah, buts for a little bit later here. All right? And we must also want Him to and believe that He will. All right? You with me so far? There's an area that God is trying to in His sanctification process, in His saving of us, in your working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's aspects of your walk, aspects of your life that God wants to deal with. You have to acknowledge that they're there first. If you don't, you're not going to be as willing to yield it. And He's not a puppet master. He's waiting for us to yield permission. I mean, why doesn't He just save everybody? Because He's not going to force Himself on anyone. Oh, will He point out to the world their need of His saving them? Yes. But ultimately, whether they say yes or no is up to them, correct? 
In the same way, now after salvation, you've become His workmanship, you have, you have become His project, and He's going to work on you. But He's still waiting for you to first acknowledge, uh, who told you you were naked? Where are you, Adam and Eve? Well, these questions he didn't know? Of course. Why was he asking the questions he already had the answers to? He wanted them to acknowledge what he already knew, so then they'd be willing to give it to him, and he could do what he wanted. You have to acknowledge that it's there. You have to ask Him and give Him permission and then believe that He will make those changes in you. What is your response? To begin the process by acknowledging what is there and yielding. I guess the best illustration of what I'm talking about is a story in Acts 24 that actually is the exact opposite of what we're talking about. I think, honestly, and I thank God for this, I have never seen this until this week. I really haven't ever seen this. And I've read through Acts and taught through Acts. and I have never seen this until this week. But in order to try to teach you what, I want to say, what I'm trying to teach you, the best teaching will be the exact opposite. And then it will all become clear. In Acts 24, look at verses 24 and 25. Paul is now, uh, he's in Rome. He's been a prisoner for, in Rome for a while. He is uh, on trial and he's before the governor Felix. And look at what it says in verse 24 of chapter 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, there you see it again, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, "Uh, That's enough for now. Uh, You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. What happened to Felix as Paul preached about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come? He came under conviction. What was his response to the conviction? Send it away. Uh, another, another time, you know? Now's not a good time. When the Spirit of God, who is working on you in love, is wanting to do something in you, you cannot... Well, you can, but it would be better for you if you don't push Him away... But you confess, agree with him that it is right, and say, Lord, you're right, I am prideful. Lord, you're right, I I still don't trust you fully. Lord, you're right, I am a warrior. Lord, you're right, this is a problem with me, and I've tried to do better, and I can't. But now, I'm giving it over to you. You have my permission to make that change. Because apart from me, apart from you, I can do nothing. You have my permission. And not only that, thank you, and I believe that you will. Do you see it? How did you get saved? He spoke to your heart about your sin, and you, you believed it, you asked Him to do it, you believed that He would. Folks, is there part of you that you've been working on for a long time, and it ain't getting any better? Remember how we talked about last week that word suke, your soul, the salvation of your soul, which is the whole you? If this is your makeup, that's the part that's going to be saved as well? You don't say, well, I'm going to heaven, but I'm just going to be a warrior the whole time. No, God wants to work on that part too. That's the salvation of your soul. In the same way now, in these areas that God begins to speak to us, we need to stop being like Felix and say, Ooh, now's not a good time. But to say, you're right. It's yours. One of the things that we do, and you mentioned putting on the full armor of God, as soon as something starts to go wrong, we put on the full armor of God and start fighting Satan instead of turning to God and saying, what are you trying to teach me? Exactly. Exactly. All right, so I'm going to jump ahead here because I'm going to come back to the setting our hope fully. 
Let's jump ahead. It says, As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Now, knowing what we know and looking at what we've just looked at, how are you to be holy? Can you be holy? Not, not on your own. Can God make you holy? And He has and He will. The Bible says in Hebrews that He has made perfect or complete forever those who are being made holy. How do you be holy? You, your responsibility is to what? You can't rest in Him until what? You acknowledge what He is wanting you to give to Him. Now, if I decide... When he says to me, as his, I'm his child, and he says to me, Jim, I want to work on this aspect of you. And I say no. Is he going to just say, okay, never mind? No. He is lovingly, but more forcefully over time, going to keep coming back to that one area. Correct? Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. If God's talking to you about something, folks, humble yourself, say you're right, Father, and let Him make the change, and you give it to Him and watch Him do it. But you do have a part. Your part is to believe that He will and acknowledge it and release it. Now, for years I've struggled with this because I tried to be holy. And as you've heard me say, how's that working out for you? I couldn't do it. Oh, and I'd confess and I'd say I'm sorry and I'd I'd promise to do better and I'd beg for God's forgiveness and I'd go through all this rigmarole. And then I finally started to understand what the Scripture is saying here. You know what? I don't want any of you going home tonight and examining yourselves to see whether or not you have it in an area that needs work. Have you ever heard a preacher tell you to do that? The Bible doesn't teach us to do it. The Bible says examine yourself see whether Jesus is in you. That's a good thing to check. But after you become His child, whose job is it to show you what areas need work? His. So don't go home and, I'm not doing really good in this area. I'm not doing really good in that area. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on for a second. Did God say He wanted to work on all areas at the same time? We've all sung the song, I surrender all. You ever sung it? I surrender all. And God says, would you knock it off? I didn't ask you to surrender all. I asked you to surrender the thing I'm talking to you about tonight. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. It sounds really good, but Jesus never expected us to surrender all at once. He says, look, yes, you've given me your life, and all is mine, but I'm going to work on this part right now. There are other things we'll get to. You don't determine what needs work. He does. Oh, and by the way, what's one of his best tools for showing us what part of us needs work? Suffering. Did you catch that? One of his best tools for showing us what part really needs work is suffering. How do you react? I preached a sermon years and years ago at Indy Atlantic called What's in Your Bucket? Because if I had a bucket and it was full of something, how are you going to know what's in it? Well, there's lots of ways. One is you could get up high enough that you could be above it and look down in and see what's in it. Another way to find out what's in the bucket is give it a good knock. Because what's in it is going to come out. How do you respond when your bucket gets knocked? 
will tell you what's really going on. And when the Spirit convicts you, you need to say, yes, Lord, this is an area, and I ask you to do it. But not only do I ask you to do it, I believe that you will. That's why, go to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start to wrap up here. Go to Philippians chapter 2. That's why Paul says it this way. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, I love how he says that. Did you ever catch that part of this verse? My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, is salvation talking about justification? Or is it talking about the whole deal? It's talking about the whole deal. That's our responsibility. We are to take serious this salvation that we've been given. But look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do you see that? God not only is the one who gives you the ability to do what it is He asks you to do. God is the one who gives you the desire to do what it is that He wants you to do. Or that He wants to do through you. Do you see it? So we're to take serious this fact that we're in this thing called salvation. We've got to stop sitting around and saying, thank God that I'm saved and when I'm going to heaven when I die. And we've got to understand that not only have we been saved, we are being saved. And we're in the process of God conforming us into the image of Christ. And oh yes, He's bringing salvation when He comes. But right now, we're just as much in salvation as we were when we got saved. And as we will be in eternity, we're in salvation right now. And He is working that out in us. And we are to take it serious. And I'll get right to you, Jim. We're taking, we are to take it serious that what we've been given. Prepare your minds for action. Stuff's going to happen. Be self-controlled or be sober-minded. In other words, don't freak out when it does. It shouldn't catch you by surprise when stuff happens because it doesn't catch God by surprise, does it? And He's already told us in this world that it's going to happen. Therefore, He says what? Be holy. God, I can't. Good. But if I'm talking to you as my workmanship about an area of your life, give it to me. Give it to me. Jim, go ahead. So then you would say, could we say that uh, as long as we're doing it on our own, we're in sin? Oh yeah. Anything done independent of God is of the flesh. So all the time that you have a problem, whatever it is, you're trying to do it, you're just compounding the fact because you're not allowing him to do you're doing it yourself. You got it. That's it. And a lot of times, over the years, I thought I was doing the right thing by trying to get better. Because I wanted God to be pleased with me. But then I realized without faith, it's impossible to please God. So how do I please Him? I trust Him. And when He speaks to my heart about a certain area, I say, yes, Father. Oh, and by the way, Father, this is something I've tried and, and I'm not real good at. He goes, I know, you're not telling me a thing I don't know. But I give it to you. And I believe that you will do it. And I thank you ahead of time. Sue, go ahead. You got it. You are and you are being made holy. 
Because are there days that Sue Barge doesn't look like Jesus? And we're not asking the people around you. We're not asking the people around you. I'm asking you. There, there, are, days, there are days you don't look like Jesus, correct? But at the same time, you can rest in the fact that He who began this good work will finish it. Oh, and by the way, the one who is making you holy, even though you are holy, you're already seated in the heavenly realms. Don't try to wrap your brain around that. It'll hurt you. But the same one that has already sealed you for eternity is in the process of conforming you into His image. Your responsibility is to not ignore that fact. But to live daily in an understanding of thank God for my salvation, but I'm also being saved today. And I yield to Him whatever it is He wants to work on. And oh, by the way, if He doesn't talk to you about anything, enjoy it. Some of, some of us don't know how to deal with God unless we've got a problem. If He says, I think you look pretty sweet today, enjoy it. Relax. Remember how I shared with the guys a couple weeks ago how God did this work on me and He asked me a question. And He didn't ask me the question again for three years. I didn't answer the question when God asked me the first time because I didn't like the answer. And so I didn't answer the question God asked me, but three years later, He took me to another level of trusting Him. And He then said, oh, by the way, I asked you a question three years ago. God wasn't in a hurry, was He? Why don't you rest in the fact that He's going to get you there? And trust Him when He says, this is what I want to work on. And you'll say, that's going to hurt. I'll take care of that. I'll walk you through it. Let's wrap up with this last part here. Prepare your minds for action. If Jesus suffered and then entered glory, uh, it's going to happen to us too. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed or to be given you when Jesus Christ is Revealed. Why are we to be focusing on the last part of our salvation in this part of the salvation process? Any ideas? Yeah, it'll keep our mind focused on the joy that is to come. It keeps us our mind on the fact that we're going to get there. He doesn't say if, does he? Set your hope fully on the fact that God is going to come and bring the rest of your salvation when Jesus is revealed. Rest in that fact. You rest in your, in your justification, right? Hopefully you're not sitting around saying, hope I'm saved, hope I'm saved. You rest in the fact that He tells us to rest in the fact, to, to the fact that He's coming and He's going to bring glory. In the same way, that'll help you rest in this part. So, I'm going to ask you a simple question as we wrap up tonight. Um, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Why? Because Jesus made a promise and, he, and you've taken Him at His word. Um, if you were to die today, would you go to glory? How do you know? Because He said so. Are you going to become what He's wanting you to become? Yes. Now it's up to you whether you take the easy road or the hard road. Now, even the easy road's bumpy. Even the easy road is painful for us at times. But why don't you just rest in Him and let Him do it? And then, one day, when you are rewarded for all that He has done through you, and everybody lays their crowns at Jesus' feet, it will be very easy for you to lay them at His feet. Why? Because you know you didn't do it. So I might, you might have, some of you might have heard me say, years ago, when I misunderstood this part of my salvation, I understood that my justification was a gift. I had nothing I could do to save myself. And I trusted Him in that. 
But I also saw that the Bible talked about the reward, store up treasure in heaven. And I had been busting my fanny, as you said, in the flesh, in my own strength. And whenever I read that passage in Revelation where it said that we're going to lay our crowns at His feet, to be honest with you, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Because I knew that I had been working hard for those crowns. Why am I going to lay it down when I had been working hard? But you know what? Now that I understand what the Bible says, a lot of that stuff that I thought I was going to get rewarded for, I never going to because it was me. And the stuff that I will be rewarded for, I have no problem taking that crown off and laying it at Jesus' feet because I didn't do it. He did it. Yes, ma'am. Can you imagine if we were allowed to keep our crowns and the people strutting around? <laughs> You're right. If we were allowed to keep our crowns, we would be strutting around heaven and say, look what I did. But you know what? When we get there, it won't be that way at all. Because at that point, we will really understand and we'll know as we are known. And we'll know that it was all done by Him. Folks, I don't know how many times I'm going to say it, and I don't care if I keep saying it until I die. Please rest in this part of the salvation as much as you rest in the first and the last part of your salvation. But take seriously what's going on. Don't be surprised by suffering or trials. Buckle up. But when He speaks, give it to Him. And believe that He will. And you'll be holy. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank You for this chance to take some time and allow You to speak to our, our hearts. Lord, I still don't even know if we've even touched really what is being said here in the fact that the prophets searched intently and with the greatest care, longing to find out about what it is that You were writing through them. They could tell there's something about this This is spectacular. And we didn't even get the chance to look at the fact that they were told that it wasn't them that they were writing about, but us. And Lord, now that same Holy Spirit that was writing through them is speaking to us through Your Word and through Your Spirit within us. That those same sufferings that Jesus went through, we're going to go through in this life. It's going to happen. But there's going to be a glory to follow. And the same Jesus that was able to have victory against this flesh lives within us now from the seated position of eternity and glory. And if we would just yield in faith, we would stop thinking that everything's cause and effect but we would hold on to the truth of what it is You have said and what You've promised. And we would take on the full armor of God. And when Satan is allowed to attack or to cause doubt or fear or worry or anxiety, that we would not try to defeat him on our own, but we would rest in the fact that You've promised. We don't know what You're doing, but we trust You. And we give it to You. And we thank You that You're going to do it however You want. Your Word promises that You'll give us peace that passes understanding. It'll guard our hearts. You'll take over. Father, may we rest in this part of salvation as much as we rest in the justification part. In Your name we pray. Amen.